this and presenting it. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Uh, it's so cool to be a part of a church where we have the immense abilities, all those, the music and unexpected is original music, lyrics and, and melodies, and it's a really powerful, personal telling of the story. Um, today we're finalizing Hilarious Holidays, which had an ugly Christmas sweater as its theme, and I know what you're thinking. This is supposed to be ugly, but it's beautiful, isn't it? Isn't this the most beautiful Christmas sweater? Can you guys see this you've ever seen? I got to tell you, I know, it, it, like I got this hanging from my nipple. It feels a little funny, you know, I just like, this is just, I'm feeling funky up here, you know, uh, that hanging, but it's beautiful, isn't it? We hope you take a picture, uh, take opportunity to take a picture and post your ugly Christmas sweater. And by the way, what's, Levi, doesn't he look like he could join Marv and Harry and stealing from the McAllister's, ha- McAllister's house with that hat on, you know, he's like styling that hat. Chicago Tribune, Lee Strobel, um, who has sold millions of copies of his book, The Case for Christ, he was once an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and he was an atheist, and he looks back and says that his journey began when he did a story on Chicago's most needy residents. And one of the articles was on a family the Delgados, who had 60-year-old grandma Perfecta and her two granddaughters, Lydia and Jenny, and they'd been burned out of their roach-infested tenement and were moving into, they had moved into temporary quarters in a two-bedroom apartment on Chicago's west side. He said, when I came to do the story, as I walked in, I couldn't believe how empty it was. There was no furniture, no rugs, nothing on the walls, only a small kitchen table and a handful of rice. That's it. They were virtually devoid of possessions. In fact, 11-year-old Lydia and 13-year-old Jenny owned only one short-sleeved dress each plus one thin gray sweater between them. Get this. When they walked a half mile to school through the biting cold, Lydia would wear the sweater for part of the distance and then hand it to her shivering sister, who would wear it the rest of the way. I stand in front of you wearing a sweater that I'll wear once this year. That's how rich I am. But despite their poverty and the painful arthritis that kept Perfecta from working, she still talked confidently about her faith in Jesus Christ. She was convinced he had not abandoned them. You've got to remember, he's an atheist at this point. I never sensed despair or self-pity in her home. Instead, there was a gentle feeling of hope and peace. I wrote the article about the Delgados. It was published in the Tribune. And then I quickly moved on to more exciting assignments. It is Christmas Eve. I walk over to the city desk to sign out a car, and I decide to drive over to West Homer Street and see how the Delgados are doing. When Jenny opened the door, I couldn't believe my eyes. Tribune readers had responded to my article by showering the Delgados with a treasure trove of gifts. Roomfuls of furniture, appliances, and rugs. A lavish Christmas tree with piles of wrapped presents underneath. Carton upon bulging carton of food. And a dazzling selection of clothing including dozens of warm winter coats, scarves, and gloves. On top of that, they had donated thousands of dollars in cash to the Delgados. But as surprised as I was by this outpouring, I was even more astonished by what my visit was interrupting. Perfecta, 
and her granddaughters were getting ready to give away much of their newfound wealth. When I asked Perfecta why, she replied in halting English, our neighbors are still in need. We cannot have plenty while they have nothing. This is what Jesus would want us to do. I asked her what she thought about the generosity of the people who had sent all these goodies, and again, her response amazed me. She said, this is wonderful. This is very good, she said, gesturing toward the largesse. We did nothing to deserve this. It is a gift from God, but it's not his greatest gift. We celebrate that tomorrow. His greatest gift is his son, Jesus. And I wanted you to hear that story because obviously it was a, it was a huge, significant event in the life of Lee Strobel. From investigative journalist, atheist, to today he is a pastor and a best-selling author on the reasons for our faith. You can actually get a great book. It's a little book called The Case for Christmas, if you wonder about the virgin birth and etc. But it's because, obviously, I am the Delgados. You are the Delgados. The whole point of this series is that you and I have received gifts that we did not ask for. I did not ask to be born in 1961 to hardworking parents who would raise me in the church and give me opportunities for education. I, I didn't ask for that. And so for me to stand in front of you and I can wear a sweater that I'll only wear one time this year and not be extravagantly, cheerfully generous would be ludicrous. It would mean that there is a disintegration within me, that there is a disconnect of my soul. I was talking with a guy this week, and he said, I got a question. He said, I know that the tradition and the pattern of the church is to tithe your, your income back to Christ. So give a tithe. He said, I made $150,000 this year. Now, if I tithe that to Christ, that's $15,000. When I made $40,000 a year, that wasn't that much. But $150,000, that's $15,000. I said, well, a couple things. I said, number one, you don't have to do it. Don't do it. You, know, I, you don't have to do that because God wants cheerful givers. Now, God loveth a cheerful giver. He also accepteth a grouch, okay? I mean, he, he does, but you don't have to do it. I said, number two, I'll pray for you that in 2020, you make a lot less money so that that amount won't be that much. And I just want you to hear this. Like, if you hear this series and you go, oh, gosh, here it is again. I got... there's, a, there's a disintegration of your soul. You don't, you don't get it. You don't do this because nobody went to Perfecta Delgado and says, well, you, you now you ought to be generous to your neighbors. No, it was a natural integrated response to grace upon grace was that she would say, now, now, freely you have received what? freely give. Now, a couple of contexts that make this message urgently important today. One is, this is, as Levi said, our time where we're going to renew sponsoring children. Just $38 a month secures education, clothing, feeding, and a church experience for a child um, in South America right now. There's $38 a month. So probably for your family, about one meal a month. But the other is this. I have a dual purpose today that I want to be very clear about. 
By the end of this month, nearly a thousand churches in America will close their doors. A thousand. I want you to understand the context that Southbrook is in culturally and spiritually. We are heading toward a more and more and more and more and more humanistic, secular state in which the, the principles of the gospel are, are not embraced. This is the way it's being put now. In, in about 15, 20 years, the church will be playing all of its games on the visitor's field. It won't be a home field anymore. So this is a real interesting deal for those of us who are in alive churches that you cannot quantify how critical it is in this era to keep these churches like Southbrook that are alive and vibrant, that are bright lights in their community from increasing its wattage into the darkness, right? If I said to you, hey, this year, by the end of this month, a thousand medical centers that have the cure for cancer, Alzheimer's, and heart disease are going to close. A thousand. What would you say? A thousand centers that have the cure for opioid addiction are going to close. What would you say? You would say, oh, we've got to do something about that. And the claim of the gospel is that the core needs of humanity, I, my past is forgiven no matter how heinous, my future is empowered and meaningful no, no matter how previously meaningless, and my future is secure. The big stuff's taken care of, now I can live. The core needs of every single person on the planet, past, present, and future, are taken care of in the claims of Christ. And the church was Jesus his ecclesia, that's what the word church it comes from. Caesar had his ecclesias. They were cities committed to his kingdom, the kingdom of Rome. Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, my cities, my churches, and hell will not overcome their power. The darkness will not prevail against their light. And so when you're in a, in a live church like this one, you had better do what you can to increase the wattage. Now look at this in light of this story. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, you know the story. Infinite numbers of child plays with bathrobes and bedsheets have been told with the story of Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now these would be Persian royalty who were very equipped in astronomy, geography, uh, disciplines of study. They were wise men. And they ask, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Josephus, Tacitus, Virgil, early, late B.C., early A.D. historians all said that there was a sense of anticipation in that era that a king was going to emerge from Judea. And so there was this sense of anticipation and then they said, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. real interesting thing on this is that, you know, Halley's Comet rushed across the sky in 11 BC. Maybe that's what the star was, Halley's Comet. Uh, there, was a, there was a union of Saturn and Jupiter around 4 to 5 BC. Maybe that's what it was. Some astronomers say maybe that's what it was. But it's real interesting. The language here is we saw his star. The, the definitive is a very particular star one of the great mysteries, I think, about faith are things like this. For example, 
If you believe Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning God created, and then God said, and it was so, and God said it was so, that the, all this contingency we see started with a non-contingent being. And that non-contingent being spoke contingency into existence. So for example, when God said, there began a process, our universe consists of 12 quadrillion solar systems. Do you know that? Our universe consists of 12 quadrillion solar systems. Each of those solar systems contain a billion stars. It's just a mind-boggling number. And God said, and it was so, let there be light, and there was light. And so it's very possible that if God could speak that into existence and, and there came a time where I need to sovereignly create a star, it's very possible that he, he did that. It's very possible. If, if there is a creator who started it all and they said we saw his star and we've come to this place. Verse 3, but when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. He was disturbed. Now this is really interesting, the cause and effect of his being disturbed and everybody else being disturbed because Herod was a maniacal psychotic. When he became king, he had all 70 of the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, our Supreme Court equivalent, the Jewish religious leaders, he had them all executed because he didn't want anyone to threaten his power. He killed in-laws, he killed cousins, he killed uncles, he killed his own sons. When he thought they were threat, he, he, we would call him a paranoid schizophrenic probably today, but he was, a, he was psychotic. When he knew he was going to die, he arranged for the, leader, the heads of families who were leaders in the community of Jerusalem to be executed on the day he died. He prearranged that because he knew he was so loathed that no one would mourn his passing and he wanted to make sure there was mourning when he died. So he arranged for all those heads of families to be killed. This guy was a nut job in the official Greek language, okay? He was a nut job. And so no wonder, oh no, Herod's disturbed. What's going to happen? And as you know, we're about to find out some terrible things happened. Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. This is obviously a ruse. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And they, the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And this is kind of a bummer when you understand this. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. This most likely, as we'll see in a moment, is about two years after the manger. So I just ruined your nativity set. <laughs> just ruined it. Because the, the, the shepherds and the cows and the donkeys... Really, it wasn't at the same time as the wise men. And sometimes truth gets in the way of a good story. <laughs> and they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Can you imagine the palpable sense of awe? And then, look at this, they opened their treasures, prearranged, and presented him with three symbolic, but as we're going to see, very practical gifts. Gold, which was the commodity of kings. This is the king of kings. Frankincense, which was the 
incense used in religious ceremonies, Jesus is our high priest interceding for us constantly before the throne of God. If you have Jesus, you don't need a priest. And myrrh, which was the burial, the burial ointment. And Jesus would die. He, he was born to die, and then he would be the death defeater. Real interesting thing here is the gold and frankincense were very expensive, and the myrrh was, was the less expensive. And so there's, there's this rumor going around that the, the, the wise man who brought the myrrh pulled the other two aside and said, hey, guys, I thought we had a spending limit. <laughs> no, that's not true. That is, I made that up. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Look at this. I want you to see a word. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, I want you to think of your life in light of that word. Because it's really underestimated that Christ followers, according to Jesus, are at their best when we turn evil on its head. When we actually use the creative innovations of evil against it. You'll see this in a minute. That's when Christ's followers are at their best. Actually, Jesus told a parable about that. I need my followers to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. This is why we believe Jesus at this point is probably about two years of age. Now, I want you to see this word again, because one of the things you may not know about the character of God and the style of Jesus that his followers like you and, and myself, we must have, is the capacity for savvy, street smarts. The magi outwitted the deceiver. The magi outwitted the deceiver. Please understand this. This is how God works. God undermines evil by turning it on itself. How do we know that? It was symbolized, it was consummated fully in the cross of Christ. You see, evil invented things like perfected torture, crucifixion. Usually it would take days for people to die. The Romans perfected the torture instrument of a of crucifixion, and it would usually take days. Usually the crucified were torn to shreds by wild dogs, etc. That's usually the way crucifixion was ended. And they perfected the humiliation and the excruciation, excruciating pain. That's, the word excruciating comes out of crucifixion. It comes from crucifixion. And what does God do? What does God do with that? God takes that and he says, I'm going to show them my love through that. I'm going to send my son who's going to live perfectly righteous and then I will show them in atoning for them, you can torture me and I will still love you. That the love of God, Paul wrote, is shed abroad in our hearts through the cross. Why? It's because God says, you can give your worst to me. You can humiliate me and I will still love you. I will still say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is the amazing thing about the cross is God outwitted evil. Evil thought it had him. This is why C.S. Lewis went from an atheist to the most effective proponent of the gospel other than Billy Graham in the 20th century. Why? He said it was the strange twist of the cross. No one would make this up. That God took evil and turned it on its head. A number of years ago, we did a series. Some of you remember this. 
It was around Easter, and we called it WTF. It got t- attention. <laughs> and, and it was it stood for What's the Fuss? Because the idea is, is we had the, I, I made this, we had this, this necklace made, WTF, that if people were all of a sudden going around with WTF necklaces on, you'd go, what, what's going on? What, what happened that these big, gaudy, gold WTF necklaces are on people's necks? You say, what happened? And you and I wear instruments of torture around our neck. What happened? We wear crosses around our neck. A first century person would go, what are you wearing that for? This is a symbol of humiliation. What do you say? You say, no, this is a symbol of God's love. It's, it's God outwitted evil. And he calls us to follow him in that way. I'm going to stop here because we want to do something we did last weekend and just stop for a moment and just before craziness hits in the next 10 or 12 days and you know all the all the stuff you got to do that you pause and understand the implications of Christmas that this king was born to die in your place um some of you remember this if you were at Provoke but Taylor McGowan grew up Southbrook I've known him since he was a little guy He's 29 years old now, I think, 29, 30 years old. He's married to Megan. He just got married this year. And uh, Taylor has just, I just have always loved that kid. I've always called him T-Mac. He's just a great heart, great heart. Well, Megan has a cousin who was diagnosed with leukemia, and all the family, including Taylor, did the testing to see if their stem cell cells would be a match it could be extracted from the bone marrow and then given to the, the individual, a stranger who had look to him, you know, who had leukemia, uh, her cousin, and a match was found, but no one in the family match, a match was found of a, a stranger who gave their, their stem cells. And today, Megan's cousin is in remission because a stranger said, I'll give my stem cells. It's really a great story, but it doesn't end there. A while later, the company that did the testing contacts Taylor and says, listen, you weren't a match for Megan's cousin, but you're a match for a 50-something-year-old man living in the Midwest who has leukemia. Would you be willing to give your stem cells for him? Real interesting thing. He tells his mom and dad, Scott and Lori, They do some of the investigation into what are the implications of this, what is the process really like. It is very arduous. It is very uncomfortable. It has potential negative side effects. And they did all that, and Taylor said, without hesitation, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for this guy. If I can save one life, why would I not do this? And so this happened a while back. Taylor is sitting in the process of discomfort and the extraction through the bone marrow of the stem cells begins. And one of the medical personnel, they come in and they say, Taylor, the man in the Midwest who's in his 50s, who's going to be the recipient, he knows what's happening right this very minute in this medical center. He knows that you're having extracted the, 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 be, the, the reality of life is being pulled from you that he might live. It's a cool story. 
I thought immediately of a couple of verses of scripture. Think of that picture, Ephesians 2.1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. There was a death sentence over you. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Can I get a yes? Yeah. I mean, this is the astonishing claim is that you had a death sentence. I had a death sentence. Romans 5, look at this. At just the right time. When we were still powerless, we were as good as dead. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a stranger or a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. We would put in this story uh, for their family members, their friends they might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his stem cells, by his bone marrow, the stuff of life, his blood, how much more shall we be saved from death, God's wrath through him? The wages of sin is death. We had a death sentence. And in the way that, in a, in a cosmic way we cannot understand that God chooses to communicate to us is it's the same thing as a transfusion of blood from the, that which was dead is now alive because this has been transported. That in a cosmic way, I can never fully understand this, the life of Christ is yours and you are made alive with him. This is why Christmas is important. This baby was born for transfusion. I don't know about you, but I think it's a good day to just stop in the midst of all your activities and thank God. So what we want to do right now is we're just going to pass the symbol of his broken body. It was pierced for our transgressions. But take in the symbol of his blood. Reenact the transfusion that if I were to peel away you, what I would find is the blood of Christ. I would find the stem cells of the Savior. And that's the truest thing about you that no one can take away. And this is how God chose to show his love for us. So let's do that right now. Let's take a few minutes and do that together as a church.
So one of the things that is this refrain throughout Scripture is this turning of evil on its own head, outwitting evil. And to that same church in Corinth that Paul had said, now you need to be generous to the church in Jerusalem that's in famine because you've already been graced. He also reminds them of this, 2 Corinthians 2.11, live in such a way that Satan might not outwit us. The words, it means deceive. The word evil is deceiver. Don't be deceived. Don't be outwitted. For we are not unaware of his schemes. So the constant, this is one of the reasons why it's important to gather and be taught is that, that you can easily fall for deceptive messages, right? We all can. So take the subject matter of this series. In essence, what we are saying to you is if you want to unlock your life, if you want to have a robust sense of wealth, about life that is beyond the material, unlock that through generosity. And the reason that that is the key is because when we are crazy generous back to Christ, we are turning a scheme of Satan on its head. I firmly believe that what God means for blessing, Satan takes and he uses it to become a curse. What he does is he then takes people's blessing and say, oh, your identity is your house. Your identity is your car. Your identity is your 401k. Your identity is your clothes. Uh, this is your identity. And you, you want to get as you know, earn all you can, can all you get, and sit on your can. That, that's, you know, that's the identity. And generosity says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be outwitted. I'm going to take blessing and I'm going to turn it. I, it, I, it serves me. It serves the purposes of Christ. I don't serve it. I'm not a slave to it. Story Levi mentioned earlier is the great story on this. Second most memorable story Jesus ever told after the prodigal son. It was a story about a man who had, event, had evidently built up assets. He had, be, he had built up wealth. And he comes across a man beaten on the side of the road to Jericho. And he didn't say, what I can't do for everyone, I'm not going to do for one. He said, what I can do for one, I'm going to do for one. And he took his assets and he bandaged them. He put him in a hotel. He made sure he had care, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing that get, often gets missed in this is that Jesus said, now you go and do likewise, followers. I want you to be like that good Samaritan. I, w- I want you to build up assets. But it's not earn all you can, can all you get, and sit on your can. It's earn all you can, save all you can, but give away all you can. Because this is, this is how I'll change the world. And, you know, they named hospitals after this guy, right? He, he literally changed the world. And he says, now go and do likewise. You. You go and do likewise. You turn evil on its head. This Samaritan, he didn't say, hey, I've got all I need. No, he said, I've got all I need. Now how can I be generous? As you know the story, look at Matthew 2, 16, 17. Then what was said after the butchering of those boys, those babies, what was said, Jeremiah 31 was fulfilled, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is a reference to Rachel was the wife of Isaac. She died giving birth to Benjamin. Her burial site happened to also be the place of mourning for Israel. 
not only remembering Rachel, one of the patriarchal wives, but also when Israel was deported into Babylonian captivity, they would pass by Rachel's tomb, her gravesite, and so it, all, it became associated with a place of darkness, a place of, of grief. That every time Israel went into deportation and enslavement of foreign powers, they went by Rachel's tomb. It's a real interesting deal that in actuality, as much as his readers would have known that when they read this, they would have also known that Jeremiah 31, 16 says, but remember, your face will no longer be be defined by weeping, and your eyes will no longer flow with tears because I am going to bring your children back. They will inherit the land again. That at this moment of darkness, it is actually the the emergence of light. And that this is what was happening with Jesus. That all these little boys were being killed, but in that there was this emergence of hope, and you and I are that plan. We are that hope. So today we have this dual purpose of children and the church, which is Jesus' kingdom. And how do we meld those together to bring light to a world where, you know, children are enslaved. Children are killed. It happens in this country. I want you to remember three things. Number one, remember this. If you've been blessed and you decide not to take one of those cards, just remember, every child is at risk. Every child. And not just children in Bolivia. Here's an interesting deal. This is why I believe in Compassion International so much. Wes Stafford has written this. He says, listen, he said, children in Bolivia, children, children in many parts of the world are at risk because of poverty. That's why children in Bolivia are at risk. But you know what he also says? He would say this, children in Bellbrook are at risk because of prosperity. It's a totally different kind of risk. Totally different kind of risk. Children in Central America are at risk because of poverty, but children in Centerville are at risk because of prosperity. It's a different risk. And the church has to say, oh, this is not not an either-or scenario. We are going to care for both. We are going to love both. We are going to resource both. Now, for $38 a month, you can take a child and and redirect their life. They'll be educated. They'll be clothed and fed. They'll be a part of a church for $38 a month. Think about that. A child that is at risk. But you're a part of a church that is going to make sure that children in Bellbrook and West Carrollton and, and Waynesville and Dayton are loved as well. Number two, remember this, the world desperately needs a benevolent king. Desperately. And we are the embodiment of the benevolent king. The king who came to die. Number three, our benevolent king was a child at risk. This is an amazing thing about the one we follow. He was a refugee child. The cool thing about the gold frankincense and myrrh was not only was it symbolic, it was practical. These wise men had no idea that what they were doing was providing practical resources for this poor family, Mary, Joseph, and the baby, to finance their flight to Egypt. 
They had no idea that they were being used in the sovereign care of God to resource this family. And Jesus would later say, what you do for the least of these, what did he say? You do it for me. You do it for me. He was a child at risk. And that's why I want to leave you with this before we get into Christmas season here. Let's build his kingdom. Because, friend, everybody here is building someone's kingdom. The word kingdom simply means your range of effective influence. Everybody is building someone's kingdom. If you're not, you don't think you're building a kingdom, that means you're probably building your own kingdom. That's what you care about. And to be one of his followers is to say, what I care about most is your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I, it's so hard to keep a church going in this culture. I mean, it's just so hard. But I want to tell you this. I, for one, I want to stand before Christ someday and say, you know, most of the time I didn't get it right. But I just wanted to build your kingdom. Your kingdom. That's, that's what I cared about. Joshua stood before Israel one day and he said, choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And you can choose your kingdom, but as for me and my house, we're going to build his kingdom on earth. We're going to chase the light and we're going to share the light. And if you want to join us in that, then you join us in leveraging all you can of your talents, your talents, your time, and your treasures to resource the kingdom of Christ in, on, on the planet Earth in Dayton, Ohio. And I would love for you to join us in that in the year 2020. Because it's just, it's, the darkness seems to be winning. If we do nothing, Herod wins. We have to outwit him by turning materialism and greed on its head and saying, no, we are going to not be defined by what we own, by what we drive, by what we wear. We will be defined by the Savior who gave his blood for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, I know that there have to be scores of people in here who have a decision to make about whether they will change the trajectory of a child's life, not only in this life, but for eternity. And I pray right now that your Holy Spirit is speaking into people saying, you can do this. You can do this. We have trips coming up, like the trip to Ecuador in 2020, where we can actually get to be a part of landing on the soil and bringing Christ to so many. It's a real cool thing that we get to do that. And I pray that decisions are being made right now that will effectively result in some little kid whom you love being resourced by someone who has been richly blessed. And Father, I pray in an era when churches all over seem to be declining, that we get to be a part of a place that is so well resourced in talent But we we, we have to make sure that we're not 
selling you short with our time and our treasures. That we have sold out to resourcing a prevailing, alive church. Your designated means by which you will bring your kingdom to earth. So I pray that decision is made today, that in 2020, we're, you know, we're just going to go crazy with our generosity back to the body of Christ. Jesus died for his church, you said. And just pray that we do that. Because there's no kingdom more important than the kingdom of the Prince of Peace whose reign will never end. Never end. Again, Father, as we go into this Christmas season where Christ is everywhere, uh, may, we, may you open up doorways of invitation and we say, hey, I've secured some seats for you. Come and see and hear this message that God is among us and he came through peasant people to show us the way. Thank you, and we're thankful for this in Jesus' name, and we pray in his name, and everyone said, amen. We'll see you at Christmas, everyone.